0: Guys, while we're setting up, maybe Joseph could look into increasing the mic sensitivity a little
1: bit because uh, he's a bit uh, less. Uh, so I can hear him worse than Max, for example. Uh, me, uh, but uh, if it if not, it's fine.
0: One moment. Okay. Here we go. There's an extra fifteen percent. That's fantastic. Better. Thanks.
1: Cool. Right. So. um uh, Joe, I'm really, really excited you were able to join us today. Um, you know, we we sort of met because I worked uh, a couple tables away from you at Gawa during my internship last semester, um, and uh, as, as everyone can see in your cool Gawa uh, uh, sweater. Um, and I only learned about uh the verified election stuff because I think I heard you say like an offhand comment about it over Mattermost at some point. And then I was like Googling Joe Canary verified elections and then saw that there's this whole, you know, world of work that you've been involved with um uh yeah. with Galois and also with free and fair. And and so i you know, I think it's a very interesting topic. And hopefully we can chat about it today. And you've got a sick free and fair uh shirt. Um, so so maybe just to get started, do you think you could give like the, the high level elevator pitch, like uh brief overview of what free and fair is and how you got involved with it or created it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, well, the short version is I was one of those precocious, you know, teenagers, like probably all of you were. And, uh, I don't know if you know, I, I, I my teenage years were in Florida. And in Florida, there's this thing called Boy State, where you can like go and get interviewed by some veterans or something, and then you go to the Capitol and do a thing and all that. And they asked me during that talk, like, what do you think America's most precious right is? It's part of my interview. And I sat there and I thought of it, and I said, I think it's voting. I think it's the right to vote, free and fair elections. And like, it was kind of an offhand thing, but it came back to bite me in the ass. Because like, I was from Florida, And I was doing my PhD in California. And then the 2000 elections happened. And it was a big, exciting time. Bush v. Gore, Supreme Court decided we should stop uh, recounting ballots in Florida, Miami-Dade County. And I looked at the ballots involved and I was like, this is crazy town. I can't believe people were voting this way. Maybe computers could help. You know, I'm a computer scientist, I'm a mathematician. So I started looking into it in 2000 And I realized that while computers might be able to help some, there's also an awful thing too, at the same time, because elections have all these requirements that seemingly are contradictory. And every election in the world is different. So you can't build like one system that'll work everywhere. And I mean that in kind of a very literal fashion. In America, when you vote in your county, you are working under the frame of the statutes and rules of the county and the state and the federal government, all at the same time, some of which conflict with each other. And so two elections can literally be a mile apart, but because they're in two adjacent counties, they can be doing completely different things. So I thought, I like hard problems, let's get into this. Now, I didn't, you know, I I like read about what was going on. I read about some of the early crypto work that was uh, published in the nineties, like Josh Banalo's PhD thesis and David Chalm's work and similar. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of interesting. That might be useful someday. And then I started looking at the technology that was out at the time for supervised voting, kind of voting where you go in a polling place. No certification, no federal rules, completely wild, wild west. Systems were running things like Windows 98, Windows CE, giant steaming piles of poo that were very expensive and taking people for a ride. And I thought, darn it, I'm a scientist activist. That shouldn't be happening. I finished up my PhD at the time I was doing a bunch of other companies at the same time, wasn't doing anything in elections. I went off and decided to take a postdoc in, in the Netherlands with a professor named Bart Jacobs at Nijmegen doing like formal methods, crazy stuff, uh, formal verification of Java and writing mechanized semantics and higher order logic, stuff like that. And when I got there, he said, Joe, I wanna make my group a security group. Will you teach my guys how to do security? And we'll cause some trouble in security. And I said, sure. So I helped bootstrap the group in pivoting towards doing not just correctness, but security. And that was a lot of fun. And a few months in, Bart came to me and said, you know what? The Dutch government just came to me and said, they want me us to audit an internet voting system they have built. I was like, cool. Um, I'm I, I'm into that. You know, it's democracy. I'm worried about that. And he said, all they gave us was a white paper and we have to tell them it's secure based upon a white paper. And I said, that's not a thing. And he said, I know that's not a thing. Uh, let's put let's put back pressure on them. So they said, you know, we can't do that. If you really want an audit, you got to give us everything involved. We'll do a pro bono. Um, we'll tell you what we really think of the system. And they said, no, 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 we can't do that. You know, you can't reveal the, the secrets of a system because then it wouldn't be as secure. Etc., etc. And so we said, All right, fine, go away. A few weeks later, we hear through the rumor mill that they're doing a beta test of the voting system for ministers of the government. And Bart comes to me and says, Joe, would you hack this system while they're doing the beta test? Build a little team. You're only going to have five days. See what you can do. And I said, Sure, so long as you protect me. Because I am a US citizen working in Holland. And you know, I I don't know how Dutch universities work. And he's like, yeah, sure. And so basically that week we mapped out the whole system, figured out what it was all about, um, compromised some pieces of it. And then the last day took it down with a DDoS attack. And it wasn't until we took it down with a DDoS attack on Friday early afternoon that they realized anything was wrong. Secret service was called, alarm bells went off. There was threats of deporting me. The university protected me and the government eventually said, you know what, you're right, we're wrong, you should audit this system. That's what started my career in causing trouble, was that circumstantial piece of situation. And based upon that work, I ended up putting on a hat that was both destructive and constructive. So I'll put on my security hat to look at somebody else's thing and critique it from a scientific standpoint, preferably using not just like classic red teaming techniques, which are boring, but also formal methods techniques, which are fun, from a programming language standpoint, from a systems architecture standpoint, from a network, um, sort of a distributed systems algorithm standpoint, and from a cryptographic standpoint. But based upon learning about how people do things wrong, you also love to do things right. So I have a constructive hat on, where over the years we have built, I don't know, between 15 and 20 example systems that are all at least EAL level five or higher, I can explain what that means, but most of them are formally verified soup to nut systems that do things for elections. And those systems have been used in real elections. So for example, the tabulator that was built for the Dutch voting system was a giant steaming pile of poo and didn't even count right. And counting, and you know, counting there is more difficult than here, but it's not like rocket science. So we build a formally verified tabulator for them in six weeks. That has been used in European elections since um, in in Holland. And so that kind of that that thing happened over and over again. So in the end, like there was a big to do about um, uh, supervised voting systems in Holland, where friends of mine hacked those as well. That you can read about. It's called the NetApp system. And so basically we shut down the internet voting system. We built a tabulator that was used for a while on that system, but it's used in other systems. We shut down the bad supervised voting systems. And then I became a professor in Ireland. And I got asked to be involved in the commission on electronic voting there to decide what they're gonna do. Cause the prime minister just wanted to, you know the prime minister said, we can't just keep voting with pencils was his declaration. And so the day before I was supposed to um, testify at the CEV about what they should and shouldn't do, they secretly signed a contract and they bought the same systems from from Belgium that were just canned in Holland. And it ended up costing the government, I don't know, in modern dollars, I think it's 40 to $50 million of machines got junked in China by virtue of our next few years of activism. Actually, one of the activists I worked with there, a young enterprising... Um, irish computer science student um we ended up working together via galois uh max not he didn't work for galois his name's colm he ended up going to amazon and writing amazon's tls stack s2n that's hilarious yeah and so now we've audited s2n and formally verified it so like he and i still get off on having good stories around the histories of elections in in ireland and like and so basically we got those that all canned in Ireland. They still vote on paper and they tabulate on paper and they have a party and they get drunk and they vote. You know, they like bet on who's gonna win the next round of the tabulation. It's a lot of fun. We also built a formally verified tabulation system for them to show that it could be done. It's an interesting voting scheme called PRSTV. And then I moved to Denmark as a professor and the same thing happened again. I, I won't go into the details, but roughly speaking the same thing happened. And then I came to America. And while working at Galois on RD for national security, where you know my clients are mostly DARPA, NSA, and a few other government agencies either examining bad things or building great things, um, we realized that eventually there would come a time when the important system we should focus on is democracy and elections. But you have to wait till there's a customer. And in America, to a close approximation, there's zero customers in trustworthy elections because of the intersection of politics and technology. There's basically three vendors that control everything. They have the lobby, they have the power, they have awful technology. Everyone knows it. I've hacked numerous of their systems. Like you find these critical flaws, you report them to the authorities, you report them to DHS. And then you get the same system like several years later from a different county and the flaws are still there. That's how bad it is out there. So eventually there came to pass that um, a system called Starboat was designed by a bunch of my friends. I happen to be the journal paper reviewer on the paper um, by some coincidence. It was co-invented by essentially cryptographers, uh, system security experts, usability experts, and risk limiting audit experts to be the system that should replace or augment all existing election systems in America for supervised voting. Because it put together end-to-end verifiability, which is a certain style of cryptographic protocol that has certain properties, along with risk-limiting audits, which are the kind of audits we should all be doing in America. But right now, only around 12 to 15 states do them. And um, that entire initiative was prompted by the county clerk of uh, Austin, Texas. So Travis County, Texas. Um, the only place in Texas I like going is um, Dana, her name's Dana, and she basically got tired of people like me throwing stones. And she's like, screw you all. Let's actually design something that works. And everybody's like, okay, sure. We'll design something that works. So they came up with StarVote. She convinced county and state authorities to give her the resources to put out a procurement bid to build StarVote as a open source election system for the entire United States, but initially for Austin. And I said, Now's the time to create free and fair. So that's when we founded Free and Fair as a public benefit corporation in order to go after the Starboat opportunity and try to raise all boats in America. So that's how we got there. Now, there is a short story around what happened with Starboat that's interesting. And then that spins into what we do today. Should I tell that story quickly? Yeah,
1: let's go for it. it. Seems like the natural next step.
0: All right, so Starboat RFP goes out. And it basically says as follows we want you to build with cops technology and open source software a high assurance voting system that'll do star vote but we don't have enough money to have you design and build the part of the voting system that's for the elections officials they already know how to use existing tech stacks to design ballots and to identify voters in precincts and do gis stuff and all that kind of thing so hey, existing vendors, we want you to bid to submit a new version of your existing system so as to support Starbuck. So you already have 95% of the features. You just need to do this 5% difference so that you can plug and play with an open source election system. Uh, we wrote a bid to take care of all the stuff we would take care of. I should say every bid I've ever written in the world of elections is public. You can find them on GitHub. We publish everything, we publish our prices, we publish everything. And we submitted it. And what the existing vendors did, as best I can tell, based upon Freedom of Information Act requests and looking at their bids, is they colluded with each other and they refused to submit a conformant bid to the RFP. They refused to build a variant of their existing election administration system that would work with a competitor. And therefore, the entire RFP process was non-compliant because they didn't get a bid from the existing vendors. Therefore, the county commission killed the entire thing. And they went and bought one of those vendor systems as a thank you. So Starboat died, even though we already wrote it. uh, in order to get a team ready to build StarVote, I got four research engineers at Galois in a war room where the where the server room is now, that max is where there was a, a meeting rooms. Four of us went in that room. In one week, we implemented the entirety of StarVote using RDE, which is the research area I run, in moderate assurance Haskell in one week. And so... It drives me a little crazy, but it made me realize that um, these guys don't play fair. I don't want to build a voting systems company and play in this market. I don't want to have hundreds of clients across the United States. I would rather do basic and applied R&D and public benefit work for everyone, including the existing vendors to make them better, because that's the way that we can have magnified impact. And so ever since that point in time, we've only taken gigs that will basically raise all boats over the years. And I'm working on a project right now. I literally just had a meeting about a project on this topic. And so, you know, even though we've built a number of things that are like products and out in the field, we don't support them as a product company because they're open source and open hardware. Anybody can build them and sell them, go to town. I love it. Um, I want a small number of clients that have inordinate impact, and that's what's led to the, you know, several million dollars of work that we've done over the years that has tried to make things better for the world, and it's why, you know, I have such excellent relationships in the federal government with regards to these topics, because they know I'm not out to make a buck from them. I'm out to make democracy in the the world better. So that's, So that's...
1: we have kind of a funny connection too, which is that I'm one of many contributors to the DEF CON voting village report. Uh, Before I knew anything about formal methods, I was uh, a novice script kitty and I went to DEF CON and uh, my... Yeah, my one contribution is I got a screwdriver out and and took the bottom off of a voting machine that nobody was interested in, and got the hard drive off and flashed the hard drive onto my computer and looked at it, and nothing was encrypted, and I could just see like a bunch of votes, and then I held my laptop up to a reporter and showed them, look, here are people's votes that they, they didn't encrypt on disk, um, and yep. and I I think you can find some YouTube video of eighteen year old Max doing this. Um, How funny uh,
0: is that? So we were in the room again.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, and I had no idea. And I, at one point, uh, I needed a particular screwdriver. There's a guy with a bunch of screwdrivers. And I said, "Oh, can I use that one?" He's like, "Yeah, sure." He hands me the scru- screwdriver, and he's like holding a flashlight for me. Turned out, it's the organizer of DEFCON. I had no idea. Um, uh, I forget the guy's like hacker name. You know, Dark Shadow something, whatever. But anyway, that dude <laughs> with holding the flashlight for me. Well, so it's a funny connection there. But I guess that leads into a good question, which is, how have uh, the kind of formally verified version of all this stuff? How, how have you know your products or similar efforts held up to kind of the red teamy scrutiny, oh, like, do you, is there yeah. is there a nice, you know, end-to-end story here where the hackers are unable yeah. to penetrate the uh, formally verified stuff?
0: Yeah, so, yeah, so there is a story there, and it's kind of riffs on what you experienced at the Voting Village at DEF CON. So I, I helped set up the Voting Village behind the scenes because of my other work, I wasn't like, it's not that I wasn't permitted to, but I didn't have the time or the will to work with personalities involved to get it set up. So like I donated it, it equipment and time. I've been at almost all the voting Village events and taught people how to do it. Galois interns have gone there and been on like the Today Show and such. Uh, you can find evidence of that. Um, and then I did a few hacks while I was there um, for fun. One of them was, well, we can return to that. Um, there's some fun hacking stories. Uh, so the systems that we have built that other people have examined, um, Well, for one, uh, are regularly used as case studies for teaching about and demonstrating new uh, formal methods, tools, and advanced engineering practices. So time and time again, people like build a new verification tool, and then they go try to go find bugs in my systems. They love that sort of thing. So it gets you lots of citations. Uh, So far, they haven't found anything, which is nice, even with advanced verification. In terms of red teaming, uh, we've deployed a number of these in settings where we have extremely strong threat models that are ridiculous uh, and then let people do anything they want with the system. So DEFCON 2019 was an example of doing this where we bought this, um, this uh, smart ballot box. It was a ballot box that was meant to only permit legal ballots going into it, which is what you think Republicans would be excited about these days, but they're not. And uh, it was attached to a uh, ballot marking device, which is actually the open source ballot marking device at Voting Works these days. And, um, and so you would vote on the ballot marking device. You would have a normal printed paper ballot. It used end-to-end verifiability, so it had cryptographic uh, evidence associated with, with it, and then you would stick it in the ballot box and try to convince the ballot box to consume an illegal ballot. So the threat model of the system was, the adversary has ultimate knowledge of everything, has all code, has all design docs, has all specs, has all evidence of the system, has a detailed specification of the entire hardware architecture as well, because it was running on an open source RISC-V platform, so you could literally build it yourself. We used inappropriate crypto to protect assets and put a symmetric key in memory where you should be able to read it. And then the threat model said, the adversary already has a backdoor, is already in the system. We give the ability to inject malware trivially. Here are the security properties the system witnesses, violate any of them in any fashion. And the easiest one is like, go get a single bit of the key reliably. No one's done. (laughs) So it's like time and time again, Especially when people look at this and they they see our threat model and they see like the models and artifacts we create, which eventually turns into code or hardware, which has a formal assurance case. Most of the time they just go, fuck that. (laughs) And they just walk away. They don't even want to try. But I like, I try to give them everything I can, even to go so far to say, here's where I think there's weaknesses. Go look there. And so far we haven't had a lot of luck. I mean, we have, but it's kind of the opposite of lot that you want. So, so far, I'm feeling pretty good. And the tools and techniques we use for our election systems are, in some sense, exactly the same as those that we use on other important national security systems. So, you know, because democracy is a critical system. We should be doing the right, right. thing.
1: So could you talk about those tools and techniques a bit? I mean, I guess not everybody on this call is a computer scientist. Um, uh, for example, Alex is a, a mathematician here at Northeastern. And right. so to those of us from CS backgrounds, I guess mm. I could imagine some story about like homomorphic encryption or something, but yeah, but I don't really know at the end of the day what it is that uh, you're doing, sure. what those techniques are. So, so what does that look like actually?
0: Well, big picture, it means that you're doing what you would call 21st century software engineering, right? So you need to understand what your problem is. You need to understand what your goals are. You need to have requirements. You know, it's kind of like, it sounds kind of like consultancy speak, almost like I'm at at Accenture and I'm building uh, an Obamacare system for the state of Oregon, which costs us $150 million, and then we threw it away. We kind of do that, Like there's, there's English involved in the like, but rapidly all those kinds of artifacts, like the drawings you have of your system architecture or the drawings that you do of your network architecture turn into formal artifacts that characterize the system. So we write formal models of each facet of the system using the right logic, the right formal foundations and the right tooling so that we're not doing mathematics only with our heads and with LaTeX with a whiteboard or whatever, but we're using tool-assisted mathematics. So this might include everything from, you know, writing a specification in higher order logic in a theorem prover. It might mean writing a cryptographic protocol specification in a protocol specification tool. It might mean writing a cryptographic algorithm specification in a different tool. And In each case, you're writing a specification along with a set of theorems that must hold for that specification which are derived from the literature, and then use the tooling to prove that your spec fulfills the theorems, therefore validating that your model is correct with regards to the overall framing. And then using our tools and techniques, we have a way to put these models together and typically mostly generate but some handwriting of an implementation that conforms to those models. And then we have other tools we use, which let us both demonstrate through rigorous testing like the automatic generation of test benches from models so that you can run tests on a system in emulation or on real hardware and do formal verification that the software or hardware you have, whether it was written or generated perfectly corresponds to a specification in all environments for all inputs. So for example, when I work on crypto, whether it's for elections or the federal government in general, we only build formally verified crypto implementations in software and hardware. And that means I can prove mathematically that the theorems associated with the crypto about both its behavior um, in isolation and its behavior and composition, like decrypting and encryption, hold perfectly for the software as well. And the software does no more, no less. It only conforms to that mathematical model. And that really wasn't possible until, I mean, you know, the, 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 the automated proofs of correctness that we do these days for advanced crypto were simply not possible until about eight years ago due to mainly work at Galois for, for the government, as well as now eventually some other entities working on it with us. Like we do a lot of work for Amazon. So a lot of Amazon's cryptos formally verified um, because of us. But if you think about it, those proofs are extremely hard in some sense to do automatically because the state space is so big. Like a, a typical cryptographic algorithm has as an input, like two to the 256 bits. And so you can't use traditional old school formal methods technologies like model checking on a state space of that size no matter what and so people tried for years and failed for years and it's only once we got to using various forms of logic-based verification that could scale to that sort of shape and nature that we were able to do these kinds of proofs but there are still things that we can't do Um, you know we can't yet reason about for example a large implementation of the RSA algorithm because of its shape and nature Uh, We can reason about models of it, but I can't prove an implementation. Uh, These days, I'm doing a lot of post-quantum crypto. We can reason about some of the post-quantum crypto algorithms and not others because their shape and nature is ill fitted to the tooling that has been developed so far. And therefore, the government goes, hey, we need better tooling. And we say, hey, we have people that can do that. And they say, hey, here's some money. And then it all gets better. So that's what we sit on. The crypto involved, you mentioned Max, you know, we don't, there's no like, even though we've just taped out a fully homomorphic crypto chip, which has formally verified components, including a multiplier that's over 4,000 bits wide, we don't need FAG for elections, right? Almost every mainstream election-related protocol that is in-verifiable uh, leans on very boring classical crypto, whether it's old school or post-quantum, with a bit of what i would call non-classical crypto like you you need to do, be able to do um secret sharing uh, or npc in small ways and you need to be able to do at least one or two different forms in tandem of partial homomorphic encryption but that's all kind of like boring stuff i mean that, that's that's largely stuff that's been around for two to five decades and so isn't really that interesting so, so that's kind they of the- Yeah, Ankit's
1: got a question.
0: Yeah. What uh, proof methodologies or tools do you use for cryptographic proofs? Sure. Uh, So the answer is it depends. Um, It's in part dependent upon the the algorithm or protocol we're looking at and whether or not it's been mechanized in the past and people have worked on it or not, or if it's fresh. Depends on the formal foundations of the algorithm or protocol as well like lattice-based crypto requires different techniques than crypto that's based upon arithmetic and that requires different techniques than crypto that's just based upon bit twiddling as it were. Um, The main tools that are kind of like the go-tos at Galois and with our clients would start with our tools that the government has paid us to develop over the past soon uh, 24 years So that would be Cryptol, which is the de facto standard government language for all crypto. The SAW tool, which lets you reason about relationships between models and models and code, particularly for crypto. So those two are like the first two things that come out of the toolbox. But Cryptol is really awkward for protocol specification. And voting machines are all about protocols. And so for protocol specification, while you can use Cryptol for that, it's awkward. And so instead we would do, um, we would use things like uh, Tamarin, uh, CryptoVerif, ProVerif, uh, Verifol, um EasyCrypt. What else have I used on projects? FCF, which is a, Package for Coq from Greg Morissette, um, Ivy. I have a list somewhere of like every every tool I've used on projects over the last 10 years. So I can send you a copy if you want, but that that would cover the typical set basically.
1: And then so of course, uh...
0: sometimes you just do embeddings. So oftentimes we'll just use Coq or Isabel or PBS and just do an embedding in a hardware logic and then it's all manual proof work in the logic itself okay it seems like you use um checkers like tamarin where you only need uh, it
1: for specification and not for actual proving because then that the state space would explode and that would cause a problem
0: yeah so again it, it would be contingent on the shape and nature of the protocol in question like we know we not only really knew these tools and these technologies and their foundations but we know what they're good at and what they're not good at and so if you kind of have a sniff about what the challenges are going to be then you avoid certain tools that are going to harm you in the end this is what it boils well down to and oftentimes it means that you're not writing one spec you're writing multiple specs slash models that tackle tackle different properties of the algorithm and it's only that combined assurance case the proof that conjoins the evidence from the different points of view where you get the compositionality and scalability you need to prove what you need to prove. Uh, The other thing is uh, whether or not uh, security proof is interesting, right? Oftentimes our clients don't care about the security proof because some pointy headed cryptographers in Maryland have already done the security proof. They only care about the correctness and things having to do with like side channels. So we do, do a lot of work on how do you build things that conform to a system for which there exists a security proof and you're not leaking information mm-hmm. and can, you can you talk, talk about, about the I properties <laughs>
1: Sorry, I was saying, could could you talk a bit about the types of properties that one would want to prove? Like, I I remember that there's a Civitas paper from Stephen Chong that's really nice, and he lays out a bunch of properties that I did not anticipate when I started reading the paper. Like, you don't want somebody to be able to know who you vote for, you know, look over your shoulder, right? So we go in a booth to do that. Have you been surprised by any of the kind of wonky policy properties that people have been interested in? Or has it all just been very straightforward, like uh, the vote should equal the sum of the votes kind of things?
0: No, I mean... You know, the the properties that are about, uh, so properties that relate to accurately capturing human intent and then ensuring human intent is included in the final outcome of an election are sort of straightforward. Though as soon as you put them in the real world, they're awful. And they're awful because the real world involves human beings and pieces of paper and machines that don't work and adversaries, right? So many of these cryptographic protocols have cryptographic adversarial models that are ignorant of the real world. And so what it all becomes interesting is when you think about the real world adversarial models. Like people love building internet voting systems and what they're saying, but they never say it, is they don't care about union bosses and abusive husbands. And what they don't care about is compromised bring-your-own-devices because the average person doesn't do security updates and devices are easily compromised. So they just don't get it. You know, they build a system that is a fiction. Even if it were right, it would only work in this fictional world where everyone actually behaved and there were no adversaries and all software was updated. What is that all about? And so, you know. The things that like surprise elections officials are commonly where you just put on your gentle gray hat, security hat, and you say, But what about the following? You know, what about me? Where's my phone? Oh, it's not here. I'll grab my iPad. Me voting on my iPad, I authenticate on my iPad and then I hand it to my daughter and she votes. And they're like, But why would anyone do that? It's like, you know, it's really simple things. The, the hairy stuff, of course gets into situations where you really offend elections officials, where you point out they're the adversary. You know, what happens if an elections official wants to change the outcome of election? And as you should, Max, all the votes on a voting machine are unencrypted, and there's no ledger that has any legitimacy. Well, that means you use Microsoft Excel to change the outcome of an election, literally. Um, and so anytime you highlight the fact that service providers providing services for elections may be adversaries including people that print the ballots or that mail out the ballots or that set up the phone tree or that set up the department of state website and anytime you highlight the fact that the elections officials themselves or the people that volunteer for them like election observers or similar may be adversaries you get enormous Red-faced reaction and, and just vigorous, how dare you insult our people? We're volunteering our time. We want everyone to vote. I'm like, yeah, you do, but not everybody does. And so that's when you get the interesting security properties, because you have to start thinking about the fact that every person, every piece of compute platform that you use, every network that you use, and literally every piece of paper that's involved in election has an adversarial friend.
1: Will Robertson uh, was telling me that at Northeastern, when they do votes for like the dean or something like that, or whatever it is that professors vote on, I'm not privy to these things. They essentially just like edit a Google Doc, and that uh, he's fairly certain they should have a better system. And so he's, you know, he's he's thinking about this problem. Um, I guess that leads into, you know, what are some applications for the the kind of verified voting stack as it develops beyond just the obvious one of county elections? I mean, uh, I guess there's like lower tier elections, like uh, you university, but are we going to see verified voting schemes for three different computers deciding on where Tesla should drive or something like that? Like, what other scenarios do you imagine this type of technology being useful for?
0: Well, it's a good question. You know, the, the funny thing is, is when, um, because voting is so hard, oftentimes when you have a new company appears and it says, we have solved the hard problems in voting, everyone says, no, you didn't, because if you had solved those problems, you'd be doing something different that makes you more money. Because at its core, the difficult challenges, especially with regards to matters of security and elections, uh, are stronger versions of security problems we have in other important systems, whether it's like how to bring up a device with trust that you can then involve in critical infrastructure. For example, I work on nuclear power reactors and they want to start putting computers in nuclear power reactors in America. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't know what you're doing. Let's not go there. And so I can reuse work in the world of elections over there because those are fault tolerant systems where voting is going on inside the system and you have to have a trustworthy system, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so like the underlying um, technology concepts meets realization that you see in matters of voting where it comes to essentially usable security meets trustworthy UIs that represent the actual state of a world, and then capturing user intent in such a way that you have verifiable outcomes of behavior, as you can imagine, is, is sort of, quote, prolific. You know, I have had engagements with people who care about these concerns, spinning out of elections towards things like financial systems, both those things in your pocket, as well as things that are like, literally in New York. Uh, Biomedical systems, think about the untrustworthy nature of a uh, of a monitor in an emergency room or a pacemaker or a uh, insulin pump are three things that I've worked on. Uh, We also see it um, these days in uh, commercial and national security systems for things that are flying around above us, both in the atmosphere and outside. So there's all kinds of places where you can pivot these core ideas and technologies, maybe not like the partial homomorphic crypto part, but certainly the how do you build a system that provides evidence that it's behaving as expected part is really important.
1: What is your broad vision for uh, your, you know, everybody's inventing their own term for like FM plus some other stuff. And, and your term is rigorous digital engineering, but I think it's more than just FM, right? There's 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 more to uh, uh, what you characterize as RDE. So what is your vision for RDE? And how does this tie into your broader project uh, vis-a-vis elections?
0: So RDE is, well, RDE is called RDE because the government decided to start naming things digital engineering. And they started using this phrase digital engineering when they realized that sometimes people could describe systems at a high level in useful ways, i.e. abstractions, models. But what that typically meant is that they were drawing very expensive pictures in PowerPoint, describing a system as complicated as the F-35, and it had no bearing on reality, literally. They will spend millions of dollars building these models that have nothing to do with reality. And it's this digital future that they're aiming towards. So I'm like, well, if you want to do digital engineering, and I've been doing it for 25 years already, and yet I'm going to build models that have meaning, semantics, I can reason about them and use them. And you're scared of the word formal, I'm going to use the word rigorous. Because rigorous lets me roll together formal and rigor in a classic like software and hardware engineering sense. So that's why we call it rigorous digital engineering. Uh, rigorous digital engineering is about applying models for which you have semantics and you understand their utility and fidelity to build a system that has evidence of correctness and security independent of who did it so the review of the evidence should be machine assisted so you don't have to trust a human being and it shouldn't matter that some phd from caltech did it versus some smart 18 year old i don't care none of that matters right so that's what RDE is about. I've got a lot of projects running, doing it. Election systems are just one place where we've done it. You know, the first RDE system we built in elections was that tabulator I mentioned 21 years ago. But there are maybe just over 100 systems like this built over the years for various important clients and people. My vision is not that I keep doing it with my team and I teach a small number of people to do it, but I teach a large number of people to do it. I was a professor for a dozen years. I taught this at six different universities to people as young as freshmen in computer science courses and mathematicians that came over who wanted to know what this whole intersection of math and CS was about. So there are thousands of students out there that have gone through my courses and know how to do this in practice. But in the real world, that means they're working in a setting where nobody in the company around them understands what a model is or a specification is or even what an assertion is. So typically, what they do is they use some of the tools and techniques in small ways to shine and surprise their colleagues, make the product better and to spread the word. Complementing that, you know, not only are like some of my old lecture materials and, and the like online still, like you can find Vimeo videos of me lecturing on this topic 20 years ago. I look the exact same as I do today, but um, government recently paid me to build a whole course around this topic. That was finished recently. So DARPA funded the development of the course. Um, I'm currently recording lectures on it and building an example system around it and writing a textbook around it too. Uh, if any of you are interested in seeing that, I'm happy to share it. It's not secret or anything. We're doing an internal version at Galois right now, as we bootstrapped over the years. You know, maybe, I don't know. 60 to 80 Galois employees in this topic, and then another couple dozen over at Free and Fair. And I just want to raise all boats. Like if I can get, if I can get um, one of my, you know, newer clients who isn't government, but build really important things to adopt RDE as part of their internal development practices over the next decade, I'll be proud. And so, you know, every check that comes in from uh, a DOD prime that rhymes with you know hockeyed port mark you know hockey Harton you know <laughs> is a good thing you know maybe it means that they'll be a little bit better. Um, likewise with the folks that I work with this topic on in uh, in Fortune 20 companies you know the Amazon work is all public, but as you can imagine, we've worked on this kind of stuff with um, other vendors who build products that are in your room right now in very specific areas. Like if you really want your, your enclave to be correct, maybe you should use formal methods in the following ways. And like, that's why ex-Galwegians build those things, <laughs> basically. So yeah, my, my vision is teach this to more people, let flowers grow, let other people do it more and realize that you can have faster, better, cheaper if you change the way that you do your engineering and you start leaning into the 20th century. And stop writing print statements, stop living in debuggers and start actually doing design and writing down what you mean to do, doing it, and proving what you did.
1: That's all. Does RDE does an RDE approach necessitate like knowing category theory and being a super brilliant FM person? Or is there a spectrum of, you know, can we have like standard software engineers who just know how to use tools in a, you know, a, in a logically rigorous way, but don't necessarily, yeah?
0: The um in my early days of work you know, I worked a lot, well, I mean, my PhD has category theory in it, right? I mean, so I I was off the deep end for a while, but I realized quite early, especially coming from the world of being a software and hardware engineer, that you can't ask people to learn whole new branches of math in order to do this practically. And so very early on, I and some people in my sub-community decided that we would focus on techniques that were approachable, learnable, and usable by typical engineers. And that's why I've taught these techniques to, you know, as young as freshmen at Caltech, but, you know, uh, sophomores at state schools, right? It's sort of my target audience. Like I've even taught it to my kids here. And so we call this approach secret ninja formal methods, It's a way to sneak into formal methods in a way that they don't know they're doing formal methods until they start learning some practical techniques using practical tools that feel like compilers and interpreters and static checkers and then they go huh i wonder how it did that and then they open up the box there's a very funny paper written called secret ninja formal methods i encourage you to read that was published in the fm conference like 15 years ago and when i got the reviews back the review said this is awesome um, I do dearly hope that you show up and give the lecture in a ninja outfit. And so that's exactly what we did. You can find photos of me in a ninja outfit taken by my friend Carol Morgan at the FM conference. We even had flames on the screen and all kinds of you know, puffs of smoke. It was, it was fun. So that's what we do. There's even a White House, there's even a report written by NIST for the White House that has a whole chapter on secret ninja formal methods. yeah that's super cool so that's how we do it is we always build tools that normal people can use so even though I've enumerated a number of fancy formal methods tools for you you'll note that almost none of them are secret into formal methods they really are written for experts like getting good at using Tamarin as an example is a at least six week exercise for someone who already knows crypto and is comfortable with those kinds of ideas it's a lot of hard work I don't, I use those tools because I happen to be that person, but they're not the tools that I give to people in this building.
1: I think an interesting example of kind of secret Ninja FM is a lot of what NASA has done. I've done a couple of NASA internships in undergrad and NASA has these repositories of code that are enormously useful for tasks that you have to do every day as like an aerospace engineer. And they just happen to be fully formally verified in PBS, but you don't, have to know that like as an intern at nasa you're just like oh here's this haversine distance formula they already implemented it for me i'm just going to import it right and you're getting all that benefit for free because they did the work of yeah verifying everything which is awesome
0: yeah when i was on the market uh you know leaving my professorship um i I, one of my options was to go to nasa and and work on exactly that team yeah and uh and, and, and partly the attraction there was I get to, you know, shoot shit in space and work on right. that stuff that's going to be for important things. Uh, part of the drawback was it would mean going back to Southern California where I'd already lived and I don't like going backwards. And mm-hmm. uh, furthermore, you really have to, um, I don't know, find joy in the mission if you want to work at NASA. Because, like, you know, I have undergrad students going to uh, Google, making twice as much as a senior person at NASA does. I couldn't see how I could live in Southern California again on a NASA salary. (laughs) So I didn't do it. But we do lots of work with NASA at Galois, So I still get to scratch that itch.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I can easily ask uh, 10 minutes more questions, but we've got a bunch of people here. So if others have, you know, anything they want to chime in with, this is a great time.
0: I'm an extrovert. I like chatting. And I don't have to cut it off at exactly three if we're still going a little bit. I just have my daughter's basketball game to go to a little bit later, where I'm the scorekeeper, not the coach, this year. Okay, I have to keep it all in. Uh, I have a question. So it seems that a lot of the users who do actually need to use formal methods are scared of the word formal methods. Why do you think that is so? Uh, Well, on the one hand, it's the standard um, problem we have, at least in America and in some other countries. You know, the farther away you get from the equator, the worse it is. uh, Where, you know, just being scared of mathematics. So there's, you know, a lot of computer scientists go into computer science and they're like, I just want to code and I want to make a lot of money. And they really struggle with the foundations of computer science course and the algorithms course because they're the ones where you actually have to think hard. so part of it is is just that, you know, formal means rigorous, means mathematical, and I've already been triggered by past mathematics. The other reason, especially for, frankly, old timers like me and beyond, I, I am older than I look, is that formal methods got a bad rap back in the late 70s and early 80s because of over-promising and under delivering. And it was at that point in time that they started moving from specifying, analyzing, thinking about toy problems to something slightly larger than toy problems. And they thought they were on the cusp of building a verified compiler or something, and they weren't. Took another 20 years of hard work before we got there. So that kind of burned folks. You know, there's a lot of European money that flowed into the topic, especially in those years. And the only success story in the early years of formal methods was essentially hardware verification with model checking. Which is like the boring, most boring branch of formal methods there is. And to a close approximation, we use zero model checking at CalWAP. Um, but it was enormously useful, and it continues to be enormously useful in the world of hardware design and verification, to some degree, and some software verification. So you know, it's about that historical overpromising and under-delivering. So now I will commonly meet people. Like especially when I was interviewing for faculty positions and I said, well, this is my area. Here's my papers. Here's the courses I want to teach you. Nobody wants to learn those. All that stuff has never, been, has never impacted the world at all and never will. And I'm like, oh boy, ignorant, are we? You know, because like you, know, you haven't <laughs> kept up with the literature for the last 20 years. You're speaking out of turn from the point of view of witnessing one or two projects 20 years ago. Let's actually talk, catch up, learn what things are going on, learn the fact that there's like a proof checker in your Java virtual machine right now that you're using every day, you know, that you just don't know that's there. And, you know, and realize that the ninja of formal methods is everywhere. Like it's in your compiler, right? It's in Clang, it's, it's, in, it's in everything, it's in every device that you're holding in your hands right now. None of this is possible without formal methods being applied in specific settings. So, So that's why it still triggers people. And that's why I honestly avoid using the word. It's the same thing happened when I chose to use some category theory in my thesis. My my committee was like, you know, you're going to you're going to typify yourself there. People aren't going to like you for some reasons. I was like, it's OK. You know, I'm also using type theory and algebras. I'll just sit on the fence and my ass will hurt, you know, because people will see I'm doing all this kind of stuff at the same time. All good. So, well, well, and,
1: and there's a propaganda effort in the other direction too, right? Because it's only in the last few years that we've managed to convince mathematicians to care about formal methods. And now Terence Tao is using Lean every day and like posting about it on Mastodon and we're all losing our minds.
0: Um, it has been exciting to witness that evolution. You know, I've, I've been <laughs> involved with several uh, historical mathematicians who started using computation to help solve their problems, you know, whether it was, uh, Uh, you know, earlier conjectures or all the initial attempts to mechanize foundational topology and algebraic geometry that went on in Nijmegen and stuff like that. So it's been great to see it evolve, but for the most part, it was like mathematicians who became computer scientists who were then doing math with computing. And now we've finally come full circle, where world-class field medalists are now using the tools that we've built to do real math in the real world. And now with the intersection of that with generative AI, crazy shit's about to happen, I promise you. Uh, I have multiple projects running where we're using generative AI, which we do not trust. This is chat GPT, stuff like that. Um, we don't trust the tools, but the tools give us a means a means by which to automate the creation of artifacts so that we can verify. And remarkable things are starting to happen in the world of particularly mathematics meets computing. Um, But if it's mathematics meets computing, that means it's me. And so, remarkable things are happening in the world of like RDE meets Generative AI. And I'll let you use your imagination. I can't talk about it yet. Did you guys see Sora yet? You seen the Sora Generative AI tool from OpenAI? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Is it the the video maker? Yeah, the video maker.
1: I just saw the the New York Times article about it. I didn't try it
0: yet. You need to go look at the videos. I mean, I knew it was under development and I had seen some early artifacts on it. Yeah. It is crazy that you can write a sentence or a paragraph or an essay and feed it to an AI and get a photorealistic video Mm -hmm. of what you just described coming out Mm -hmm. of a computer in a short amount of time it's a, it's a miracle it is just a miracle <laughs> it's, it's going to change okay, the way
1: so I, I have to go in like 5 minutes cuz i promised emily i'd meet her at the hot yoga studio but i've got one last spicy question to get your take on which is uh, uh i think we've all looked at the source code for some fm tools and thought good god this is what the <laughs> the underlying code is when are I we going to get rde for rde like when are we going to see uh, the fm tools being developed in a way that uh gives us confidence in their output i'm thinking you know, of something that rhymes with blivy
0: yeah we, we already do it um on at least the tools developed in my sub team at galois but the other team uh-huh. don't do it at all they don't even well i shouldn't say more but they don't do, what I do. <laughs> uh, yeah and they know i know that and they know i say that and, you know it's it's no you can go look at the artifacts so you know there is a subset of the community that eats their own dog food mm-hmm. there's not many of us and and some say in this instance we drink our own champagne mm-hmm. so numerous tools that my group has developed drinks their own champagne and uses our own tools or on our own tools and actually build formally verified things the most rigorous of those would be people who work in constructive logic and things like cock where you're going to do, um, you know, extraction to generate code, which you can then verify in order to build right. things like the CompCert compiler and other pieces of infrastructure. The verification tool that I'm working on now with Cambridge, called CN, mm-hmm. is in Coq, and so the entire thing is foundational. Proofs of correctness of the tooling exist, et cetera. You have practical tools like Daphne from my friend Brewston at Microsoft Research, which is written in Daphne. So therefore, Mm. it's moderate assurance. It has formal specifications of its behavior, et cetera. So it's eating its own dog food. You know, it it started off not so, but then they bootstrapped and eventually they can compile themselves. So you're seeing it more and more, but it takes a special kind of person to be honest with themselves about whether or not the tools and techniques they're using are really practical and useful. You know, if you're just going to create a An artifact for its smallest publishable unit, that's usually Mm -hmm. not the thing that you're going to then use to build the tool. It's got to be something with greater investment. So there's plenty of good examples, a lot from Microsoft Research, a lot from folks at Inria, a lot from folks at Galois, and a few other places. But it's a drop in the bucket compared Mm -hmm. to the number of overall verification tools that are in existence today. It is true.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Joe, this is super fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always you know, a pleasure to talk to you. And and uh, uh, I, I certainly had a good time. Hope you did, too. And I uh, yeah. uh, hope to see you again sometime soon.
0: Yeah, I like to talk. I appreciate you hanging out with me for a while. It, it's a nice end of the week. I hope you all have a good weekend and have a beer on me. Okay, sounds good. Adios. Thanks.